Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools, and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being, and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 88th episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. And it's Deaf Awareness Week from the 3rd to the 9th of May, and the theme is Coming Through It Together. The UK Council on Deafness, founded in 1993, and the National Umbrella Organisation for Charities and Professional Bodies working in the field of deafness coordinates Deaf Awareness Week, which involves a UK-wide series of national and local events to raise awareness of the needs of one in six deaf or hard of hearing people in the UK. Deaf Awareness Weeks aims to promote the positive aspects of deafness, promote social inclusion and raise awareness of the huge range of local organisations that support deaf people and their family and friends. But what about sensory impairments as a whole in the wider sense and people who may have a number of disabilities? To talk about this in greater detail, I am joined by Richard Kramer, the CEO of Sense. Sense is a charity for everyone living with complex disabilities. For everyone who is deafblind, Sense is here to help people communicate and experience the world. They believe that no one, no matter how complex their disabilities, should be isolated, left out or unable to fulfill their potential. Richard was appointed Sense and Sense International's Chief Executive in July 2018, having joined as Deputy Chief Exec in 2013. Prior to joining Sense, Richard worked at Turning Point, the social enterprise organization for 10 years. He held a number of director-level posts, including the business function, Connected Care, which involves service users in the design and delivery of services across England. He's a qualified solicitor, so Richard has worked for Public Affairs Consultancy, NCVO, and was MenCAP's head of campaigns for four years. Richard was also a trustee of Respond for 10 years, and he's currently a director of Whitefield Academy, which supports children with specialist educational needs, and a board member of the Campaign to End Loneliness and vice chair of the Disabled Children's Partnership. So I'm absolutely honoured to have him with us today. Richard, a huge welcome to the show. Hi there, lovely to be with you and to see you. Oh, thank you so much. And I know how busy you are. So this is absolutely amazing to have you on the show. And I just wanted to start by asking you, you know, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your work as CEO of Sense and Sense International and the kinds of things that you do? Yes, so Sense is a national disability charity. So we support children, young people and adults with uh, complex disabilities and deaf blindness. And that might be in their homes, in their community, in education and transition to adulthood. And we run a number of programmes, so we support them through our holidays, arts and sports and wellbeing programmes. We also have 121 charity shops and we not only work in the UK, but we also have a smaller part, a Sense International, which works in eight countries across the world. And so on a day-to-day basis as the CEO, and I'm sure every day is different, what are the kinds of things that you're overseeing in terms of strategy, fundraising, um, and the things that you're doing for the charity? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's all of that. I mean, on, on, on one level, I need to provide clear vision and leadership to run a charity well and efficiently. But also, I think Sense is a special organisation because we still make sure we understand each other's perspective and we're motivated by empathy and compassion in everything that we do. Um, of course, <laughs> the last 12 months, like for the whole country, has been mm. uh, very, very uh, different. Like every other charity, we've been managing through 
a, a crisis, a, a pandemic. You know, we've been forced to tear up our services, rewrite our approach, land new services, you know, but at a time when the world has been changing, we've, we've done so much in terms of, above all, protecting people and keeping people safe and engaged in our housing services across the country. But we've also launched a new supporter engagement campaign, new virtual events and products, really to help raise our profile during this time. And I suppose as well as doing new things, we've learned new ways of supporting each other, uh, whether that's collaboration between teams or supporting people's well-being, which has become much more important during this last 12 months. Mm, it's been vital. And I remember attending your event just before Christmas and learning all about how you had adapted the things that you do in the services uh, in an online environment and how well it worked. And it was br- it was brilliant to see that. Oh, good. I'm glad I did know you, you came to that. So I'm really <laughs> yeah. pleased that you did and got firsthand the kind of thing that we've done. Yeah, I mean, we moved a lot of work virtually, like every charity. And I think, you know, some of that is here to stay. We'll, we'll continue to deliver a blend between face-to-face and virtual services um, based on people's needs. Um, and it also means we've got different departments working more closely together. We've been able to scale up some of our work, particularly around tackling loneliness and isolation. And, and some of that will stay beyond uh, this pandemic. It's interesting, I think, as well, for many of my friends with various disabilities who identify as disabled, how, in, in fact, working virtually, working in this way has been very helpful for them. And in fact, I've got a friend who is a wheelchair user who said that I'm finally VAT registered because all the things that I couldn't get to and couldn't do, I can now do them. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Mm. I mean, it, the, the secret's out. The world can be accessible. And, and actually, virtual access, as, as your experience said, has given people a real chance to participate in equality was actually a choice. You know, we've learned to live remotely. Um, we've been forced to do some things that disabled people have been asking for years, be more flexible, mm-hmm. do things differently, remote work, virtual conferences. You know, we, we can communicate in a variety of ways. And we've learned during this time, we've done a lot of virtual events and conferences. And some of the work that we're doing should be practice, common practice for everyone so when we have external events or internal events you know we ask beforehand if anyone has access needs as a matter of good practice we'll have a British Sign Language interpreter if we've got an external event I think it's really important for people to introduce who they are when speaking it it helps people who are visually impaired know who's speaking and it stops people talking over each other and there's some great practice out there as may Fairburn introduce themselves visually before they speak so you know I would say um, I've got olive skin and dark hair and that that just levels provides a a level up between um, different groups of people and we also build in time for breaks because if you've got an interpreter it's really tiring so yeah zoom fatigue is a real thing so we build Mm -hmm. in short breaks into our external events every 25 minutes and it makes a real difference and that's the thing, they're really easy, practical things that don't cost money, that, that actually they make sense and they're so helpful for everyone, whether you define as having a disability or not. And that's the thing. And you said, you know, common sense, but sadly, we know, Richard, don't we? Common sense isn't always common practice. No, I don't, <laughs> it, 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 absolutely. I mean, it, it is interesting because um, 
you know, we, we know a third of non-disabled people avoid conversations with disabled people because they don't feel they've got much in common, so they don't start. And actually, I suppose, so actually the starting point would be to have a go, start a conversation, talk to people, talk to your kids about disability so it doesn't become a, a taboo subject. Think about how you can make life more inclusive, how you can use more inclusive language. How can you make your workplace more accessible? That is about common sense and that's about being practical and you know, just, just, just having a go and talking to people rather than and, and realizing how much you have in common rather than what may divide us as individuals. And that, and you know, that makes me think about something else because, of course, the term disability is so broad, um, and how people define themselves. So, how is the term deafblind received in the non-sensory disabled world? Yeah, so, so I mean, deafblindness just so is a combination of sight and hearing impairments, yes. and I think that affects how people communicate, access information, and get around. We're now a complex disability charity, so. Uh, we were founded by two mothers whose parents were uh, affected by rubella during pregnancy. Um, and uh, we grew as an organization. And now rubella is, you know, a mild and preventable viral disease. So it's now rare in the UK. But we've seen that children and adults are living older and develop a range of complex disabilities. So we've, we've, we've become a complex disability organization which means that people we support tend to have a range of needs and high support needs so they may have a learning disability and an additional sensory impairment um, but they might not be uh, deaf blind and i think it's about what what joins people together and i suppose this is about really taking time to appreciate people's lives are that the many people we support communicate differently I think that's the common thing. They may, they may use speech or they may communicate through a few words, signs or symbols. And, and I think the key to understanding sense and the work that we do is really taking to, the time to appreciate an individual's different view of the world, how they communicate, and actually their experiences that can be very personalized and enriching, you know, feeling the rain on your face, touching the texture of sand for the first time. Uh, visualizing and interpreting music by feeling the vibrations and rhythms of musical instruments. If you take the time to understand how people live their lives, you don't just understand them, you understand yourselves a lot more. And I've, I've certainly learned a huge amount about myself through the work we provide to others. And that's just about understanding how different people connect and communicate and make sense of the world around them. It's so true because I remember the first time I had a conversation with someone uh, with a British Sign Language interpreter and when you're new to it there is a I mean for me there was a knack to it in the sense of what I needed to do but I'm so glad I did it it was such an eye-opening experience and I do not mean that to sound patronizing I'm talking about it from my perspective so now when we've gone on Zoom and I have delegates who have British Sign Language interpreters um, I'm more au fait with it and that's the thing the more we are exposed to as you said communication preferences and the ways in which people want to communicate because that's essentially what it is the less frightening or the perception of oh my goodness what do I do I don't know how to cope with this um, as anyone who doesn't define as disabled or who doesn't have a disability in that moment yeah I mean in the sense we get 
we're very aware we're a disability charity but we make mistakes and get things wrong and and you know uh, and it is a learning process and there's a there's, there's quite a lot to learn but actually sign language is great fun to learn um yeah you know, we've got it, it's a very expressive warm language it's actually quite fun um and you know since we we've introduced uh, we have some learning, which is about talking to colleagues in the workplace, because, you know, that's the best way of dismantling barriers. You don't want to learn the different countries or colours <laughs> or numbers, but you yeah. might want to say, how was your weekend yeah. and how are you doing? <laughs> and, and that's why we, we, we've got uh, our BSL uh, course at work is really about just giving people practical things to say in terms of communicating to, to deaf colleagues, but also about just it, it, it's really helpful in terms of just understanding different forms of communication and it's great fun as I say to practice. Mm. And so how did you come to work in the charity sector and specifically the disability charity sector? Yeah so um, I mean I didn't start off that way I was the first in my family to go to university and so um, uh -huh. my family were very clear that if I wanted to go to university I would have to do a traditional course so I did law trained to be a lawyer qualified to be a lawyer and didn't like it at all and I think a learning is if you don't like something <laughs> don't do it get out of it and at that time you know I, I had on a on a personal level I had grew up with disability in my wider family I'd volunteered and set up a, a, a youth club in 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 North London so uh, I also volunteered at a long stay institution when they had those things in in, in Hertfordshire yeah. So I, I had that personal interest and I was at that time, because it was probably more exciting in the 90s, I was involved more in local politics. So I jumped from law into the world of public affairs, uh, you know, influencing lobbying. And from there went to NCVO and then NCAP and then Turning Point and then said. So it was uh, I didn't set out to. Uh, well, my parents set me out to be a lawyer. Uh, I, I, it, things just happen, and I think it's you know you fall back on what you're interested in and, and your your own experiences, and I suppose that's helped inform my the career choices I've made. Mm, I always say that the things that you do in your life, even if they don't seem, if they seem tangential, they will always find a way into informing you and what you go on to do. Yeah, I hope so, and uh, you know it's lot of things are by luck and some of it is by sheer sheer determination it's usually a combination of the both but um, <laughs> I mean I love what I do I mean I, I feel a real sense of connection with sense you know I've worked for a number mm. of charities but I feel I have a real personal stake in sense because of the work that we do and the difference we make and what you learn about yourself and others it's a it's a it's a wonderful organization I'm very mm. proud to lead sense and have the opportunity to do so yeah it is it is a fantastic organization and at the beginning you mentioned of course well-being uh well-being and mental health and so i wanted to pick up on this point about mental ill health and specific communities uh, with complex disabilities that you support what do you think are the biggest challenges in accessing support for those communities particularly if they're experiencing mental ill health yeah i mean all of us have, have uh experience issues not all of us but all of us have felt disconnected at some point during yeah, this pandemic definitely um but it's it's harder for disabled people i think the starting point is many don't have the support networks around them um you know we talk about older people whose networks diminish as they get older 
many disabled people might not have that support network around them and they may be more cut off from their local community and during this time so many people have struggled to leave their homes at all and whilst technology has been beneficial for many some have not had access or the same use to technology to connect with others and people have had their support reduced during this pandemic um, you know many children adults living at home have gone with no support you know they haven't had people coming to their home uh, families haven't had respite or short breaks people haven't had uh, physiotherapy, speech language therapy. And some of the work that we did showed that over two thirds of disabled people said they felt chronically lonely. And that mm. constant feeling of loneliness that goes on and on and doesn't seem to end has a real impact on people's mental and also their, their, their physical health. So it's that people have experienced high levels of isolation but also they experience high levels of isolation before the pandemic. And so, you know, yes, we need to think about mental health support. We need to think about dedicated services that tackle loneliness. But, you know, if we're thinking about post-pandemic, we need to think about changes to make life more inclusive. Um, that might be attitudes. We've, we've, we've talked about how people might avoid uh, conversations with disabled people, but it's also about accessible transport, financial support and appropriate social care. It's, it's about making life more inclusive for disabled people. And that's how we tackle um, some of the chronic loneliness, isolation and mental well-being issues that arise because of that. And what, you know, what can we do then? So maybe people are listening to this and thinking, yeah, absolutely. I'm totally with Richard. He's, he's saying what he's saying makes so much sense. Um, and then we might feel powerless. We might think, oh, what can I really do about that? What, you know, um, accessible transport in my area. Hmm, I don't know who I'd talk to about that. So what do you suggest that we can all do to push for these changes to make society more accessible? Yeah, I mean, some of the things I've talked about before, you know, it's about talking to your children about disability, so it's not a taboo subject. It is about more inclusive language. It's about, if you're an employer, how you can make your workplace more accessible. And there's lots of tips and advice out there. Um, there's also some really great dedicated schemes that tackle loneliness. Um, and, you know, Sense isn't the only one, but there's some really brilliant budding schemes out there that connect disabled and non-disabled people together. And it's based on mutual interests. Um, so it, it, people may have a shared interest for, you know, sci-fi or sport or cinema or books. And it's about connecting people because of that interest. And that means if you're doing that, that relationship is really equal. It's reciprocal. You're, you're gaining something from it uh, as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. And so that disabled person, you know, that we've got schemes because you talked about BSL earlier, where, you know, I might take someone out to the cinema because we both like cinema and that individual might teach me BSL. So it's a mutually beneficial point, a mutual benefit. And mm -hmm. if you think about post-pandemic, if, if you going to the cinema with a disabled people, that a disabled person, that has a ripple effect in terms of visibility in the community, uh, maybe the, mm. the person, you know, when you go into the cinema and you're greeted by someone, that person will learn about disability issues as well. So it's about visibility. It's, uh, it's about uh, volunteering. It's about, um, I suppose some of it's about inclusive language as well. I mean, even, you know, the great yeah. uh, 
uh, line of duty that they were using language such as suffer with disabilities yeah. mm. and actually that we should challenge that because some people may suffer but the word suffering suggests pain it suggests helplessness it suggests uh, a lack of quality of life and that's really not true so i suppose what we can do is really think about how we use language and how we um, and if we see things that aren't right i think we should be able to to challenge them too it's it's, it's not about accepting everything that we see or, or experience it's so true a, a suffering i see that all the time i had to fill in a health questionnaire the other day and it said do you suffer from epilepsy do you suffer from diabetes and i'm not like you said we're not denying that people don't experience pain difficulty challenges but it's that making that day-to-day -day language as opposed to do you have or have you been diagnosed with or would you define as having it's a very different feel to it doesn't it, it there is a very different feel. Uh, but at the same time the, the counter argument is we don't want to make it difficult for people we don't want people to think oh i'm not going to get it right and i think one of the barriers for yeah. is that i'm going to get it wrong i'm going to say something i shouldn't say it doesn't matter i think i think striking up a conversation uh, thinking about how we can be more aware of the environment and people around you and having a go is much more important than thinking I won't talk to them in case I get it wrong. So there are limits to that, but but it language is important mm -hmm. and being inclusive and open it, it, it is is something that we need to know, but it shouldn't be a barrier. No, I do. I do agree. And, and that also we can always check and educate ourselves for the next time, make a mistake. It's OK. Learn from it and move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so thinking about you mentioned employers as well. So what do you think workplaces can do to, um, you know, I've said open their eyes, but just think about accessibility and inclus inclusion in terms of disability in a more anticipatory rather than reactive way. Um, if you've got any tips that you can share with us. Yeah, so we do run a, um, an employment service in the West Midlands, and I, and I think the big learning is not to say, employers, why aren't you doing more? Uh, why aren't you providing more employment for disabled people? Because that doesn't work. It's about working alongside employers. So you're supporting them to develop inclusive recruitment practices. You're supporting them around disability awareness. And so they understand schemes such as access to work, which can help them in terms of uh, employing, employing more mm. disabled people. So we've been working, and during lockdown, we, we've been working with employers in, 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 in the West Midlands, such as you know, Network Rail, Nottingham University in the East Midlands, West Midlands Police, looking at CV workshops and mock interviews with adults with sensory impairment. So you know, if, if an employer hasn't met someone with a, a sensory impairment, it's a really good way of meeting people informally, but also supporting them in terms of building their CV, what an interview is, is, uh, is uh, about. And that actually has led to volunteering, work placements and work opportunities. So I think there's a different way of working with employers, working alongside them not berating them um, to do more. I think that's, that, that, that is key if you want to build inclusive recruitment practices that stay and, and gather pace and remain and lead to more employment. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. And then um, I think, again, thinking about access to work. So that's the government scheme around supporting people with any equipment or assistive technology or indeed uh, training for staff around them that need help. And I'll include a link in the show notes in case you're not familiar with it, uh, listeners. Um, and then I wanted to touch on intersectionality, Richard. It's, it's, it's on the top of my head today because I've just been having a session about that. But you wrote a wonderful blog in August 2020 about your identity and your lived experience of racism as a Jewish person. Person. Uh, so I wanted to ask you as well, what are the ways in which we can think intersection, intersectionally about sensory and complex disabilities and challenge our stereotypes? Yeah, that, that, I mean, it's because of the Black Lives Matter movement that shone the spotlight on racism and inequalities made me think about myself and my own identity. And, and so it's not something that I've talked about before that blog, which is interesting in itself. And it probably shows the journey I'm on. Yeah, that's really interesting, um, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose some of that is perhaps uh, maybe a sense of internal shame about talking about being Jewish. Uh, maybe it's also about keeping your heads down, you know, don't draw attention to yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and part of it is, you know, anti-Semitism is sometimes glossed over. It's not condemned always like other forms of racism. You know, on the right, I think we're seen as other. Um, this is the far right uh, mm -hmm. we're talking about. But I've seen on the far left as well that Jewish people are perceived as white and therefore beneficiaries of white privilege and therefore don't really count when you're looking at anti-racism. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and we should count. It's, you know, it's, it's not saying anti-Semitism is worse or more important than other racisms. But it is, it is, he, it needs to be treated as mm -hmm. uh, something that is unique, you know, uh, we are a minority community uh, that at times need protection. Hate crime against Jewish people is, is, is higher than it has been before. And framing Jewish people as rich and white, I suppose mm -hmm. that's the, the, what said, uh, frames Jewish people as, a, as an oppressor, not, not a minority community mm -hmm. that needs that protection. So, you know, <laughs> the other part of it is that rather than hiding your identity it's perhaps being prouder of yourself um, you know as I was running the other day I was listening to Riz Ahmed talk to Louis Theroux and he was mm. talking about his uh, you know being uh, Pakistani talking yeah. about his background and saying he wanted to come out of the shadows and own his identity a bit yeah. more and maybe you know I'm still navigating my way um, but actually there's, there's 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 quite a lot about Jewish identity that we can be proud about mm. you know our culture food food humor music you know it's 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 anti-semitism isn't a jewish problem it's, no. it's a problem that others have that impact on jewish people and and actually maybe i shouldn't keep my head down all the time and maybe i should be prouder so i am on a bit of a journey um i find social media it's horrendous i can mm. well understand why people have mental health issues mm -hmm. it's it's appalling some of the comments and language that are used and then justified that mm -hmm. appear to me to be blatant anti anti race uh, appear to be blatant racism mm -hmm. but are discounted by others as as, as not um, so it is with some trepidation that <laughs> I'm talking about these things and mm -hmm. as I say the blog was the first time that that I have said something um, so yeah I'm still very much finding my way
And and then thinking about your own, thinking about social media, you're talking about that and your own mental health and being a CEO and all the things that you do. How do you look after your own mental health and what are your top three tips? Um, okay. Well, I mentioned running. This is Louis Thoreau's <laughs> podcast. I mean, since I started at Sense, I've, I have done, I think, five half marathons and about 10, 10K. I was supposed to be doing the London half marathon last year um, and it's now delayed till August the 1st. Since I had COVID over Christmas and I haven't been able to fully recover, so I can only get up to about 6K, but it's the same thing. I never want to run. I have to force myself out. When I've come home, I feel so much better for doing so. So running is, is certainly one thing. I do spend 10 minutes doing headspace, um, mm-hmm. uh, well-being app every day. I'm pretty hyper person, so it's quite nice to slow down, slow your mind down, relax, not over-label things, but note things. I think that's quite, quite helpful. And, you know, at Sense, we've been thinking about people's collective as well as individual well-being for since since. May 2020, we've been in, introducing resilience, well-being, mindfulness, avoiding burnout sessions. We've been doing a lot of that. Open communication between me and, and the organisation, thank you days. We've had sense gigs where we've invited speakers into sense. I suppose the thing that's really important is around structures and routines. It is about having that break to have a walk or to run. I do something a bit quirky at the end of the day. I change in, into <laughs> wear some different clothes yeah. because I'm, I'm not wearing work clothes during the day now. No one is, I don't think. So um, <laughs> I change into another pair of jeans, but it, it just helps me mm. separate day and working and not working after work when I'm still at home. So it, it, I find that maybe it fools me, but it, 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 it creates a different pace to the day by doing something different. And, something as little as not wearing the same clothes at the end of the day when, you, when you're sitting down to eat as you were when you're working during the day, for me, makes a, a big difference. But I suppose it's about regular breaks and structuring your day because you could sit here mm-hmm. all day in front of that screen and do your backing if you chose to do so. Because, you know, in the good old days, you'll go to the office, <laughs> you'll go out to a meeting, you'll prepare for that meeting, you'll travel, you'll come back and, you know, half your day's gone. You haven't got mm-hmm. that you've got instant zoom world and that means you 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 really need to be guarded about burnout and uh, not overdoing it that's a great tip richard about getting changing into other clothes i love that <laughs> i think that's hugely helpful <laughs> <laughs> i am actually in work clothes today as opposed to track suits yeah well, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, there I think you go that's, so that's when, you, when, when you have yeah. dinner tonight before you do before you watch um line of duty uh, yeah maybe maybe change your clothes at the end of the day yeah. i think that's a great idea brilliant um so i'm very much hoping that people want to get involved want to know more about sense and what they can do so if people want to know more how should they do this and i will share those links and um avenues in the show notes but please do share where people should go and check out more about your work yeah, I mean, just go onto the main website, uh, Sense, just search Sense, and you, you'll, you'll find us. I mean, there's lots of opportunities to get involved. I mentioned Sense Science School. If you mm-hmm. want to learn BSL, um, we've got the fantastic uh, teacher, Tyrese, who, who has charge syndrome. He's got sight and hearing impairments. He can teach you uh, a few lessons around sign language. 
if you want to volunteer for Sense, we're going to be opening our 121 shops on April the 12th. We've always got volunteering opportunities there or some of the budgeting schemes I talked about and tackling loneliness. And also, um, you know, do think about having a job in social care. I mean, we're, we're working with um, Birmingham College um, and we're working with a number of organisations. So we're working with Birmingham South and City College about how we can um, recruit more people from um, a BAME background, uh, Black, Asian, minority ethnic background. We're looking at uh, bringing our services to local communities because we can't expect people to know about social care. And we're also looking at how we can develop a leadership course that isn't about strategy and vision and finances, but is about getting on in life getting a job, getting your first promotion in social care. So we're really trying to strive to do things differently. So as well as volunteering or, or learning BSL, we're looking to recruit more people in social care across the country. And um, we've got, as I say, this particular opportunity with Birmingham South and City College, and we're working with Acorn, St Basil and St John Ambulance, really to engage with communities and individuals who probably haven't heard of SENSE, who certainly haven't heard of social care. And um, we're interested in your, your skills and talents, more than your qualifications, in order to create more opportunities for people who might not otherwise think about social care or might face barriers in accessing those opportunities. That's hugely exciting. So I'll definitely, yeah, be promoting that and putting the, the link in the show notes. And so Richard, thank you so much again for your time and your wisdom and your generosity. It's been an absolute honor to have you on the show today. It's been lovely uh, meeting you too, so lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too, everyone. And please stay tuned for more exciting things during May and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Diverse Minds podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Tune into next week's episode of the podcast where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.